Well, good morning. Welcome to First Missionary Church. It's hard to follow not just the reading of God's Word, but a marimba solo. Did I say that right? Yes. How many knew that was a marimba that he was playing? A few did. He did a great job. So thank you, Ben, and Mike, too, of course. Thank you as well. Yep. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3. And special welcome to those who are up above in the balcony. I learned this morning that balcony people don't want the attention drawn to them, but they just like to be acknowledged. I'm acknowledging you this morning. <laughs> so we're in Jonah chapter 3, and uh, this chapter actually is surprising. A lot of Jonah is pretty surprising, even though it's a very familiar story. Um, if you have never read it, it's definitely surprising, but even if you've been a Christian for a long time, in many ways it's surprising. I remember when I turned 30, which every year seems farther and farther back, but my wife uh, took me out for a dinner, a nice dinner, just me and her without the kids, which meant it was great, no kids, enjoying a nice dinner. And then on our way back to our house, she's like, I got to stop by the church. I'm like, okay, I'm a pastor. That's normal. Let's stop by the church. And she said, I got to pick up something at the church. Okay, sounds normal. And we get to the church and we see a lot of cars there. And I thought, okay, that's normal because a lot of things are always happening at the church. I have no clue what's going on, even as the pastor. So I walked in with her, and as I get in there, I see my Lima friends. We're in Lima at the time. And then I see my family from Bern, and I thought, worlds collide. And then all of a sudden, surprise, happy birthday. And she had got me. <laughs> but five months later, I got her back because she turned 30 five months later. So <laughs> all that goes to show, how many of you like surprises? How many of you can't stand them <laughs> in some ways? <laughs> some of you can't. Well, when it comes to reading God's Word, in many ways, I think we are to be surprised. And whether we like it or not, uh, we are to see how God works and, and the kind of God He is and the kind of people He saves and the kind of people God uses. We're going to see that today in Jonah chapter 3. So if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Thus far, we've seen Jonah was called once by the Lord to go to Nineveh and preach against it. He does not. So God sends a storm to wake him up as he boards a ship, and eventually God sends a fish to swallow him for three days, and then the fish vomits him out at the end of chapter 2, and then we get to chapter 3, uh, beginning of verse 1, and here's what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's great. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, yes, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So most likely it wasn't just the city he's going through because, I mean, it was a big city for that time, like 100 to 300,000 people. But it's probably Nineveh and the surrounding suburbs, like 50 miles across or so. And it says in verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days in Nineveh will be overthrown. How many words is that sermon in English? Can you count them? How many is it? Eight. Thank you. We have one counter. Thank you. In Hebrew, it's actually only five words. Pretty simple sermon. And in verse 5, it says the Ninevites believed God. Boy, if I preached five words to you, would that change you? <laughs> Some of you are like, I want to see you try that, Rick, and we could just leave. <laughs> But he does, and God uses it. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, 
and all of them from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He also covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible chapter. Lord, showcasing your grace and your purposes and your glory. I pray that as we hear from your word this morning, that you would slow us down, remove distractions, and help us to be here in the moment, ready and eager to listen to what your spirit wants to say to us through the preaching of your word. We dedicate this time to you and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So I mentioned a surprise. We're going to look at two surprising truths today, two surprising truths in the way that God acts, and then we're going to look at two surprising reasons uh, showing why God acts the way he does. So two surprising truths and two surprising reasons. So the first truth, the first surprising truth is the kind of people that God saves are people like the Ninevites. And we see this, it doesn't take long in this passage, but Jonah goes, he preaches, and it says in verse 5, they actually believe, not Jonah, but they believed God, that Jonah had a message from God. And they believe it so much that they stop eating, a fast is proclaimed, and even all their animals are fasting too. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, they put on this material called sackcloth. Now, do you know what that is? That is a type of material made from goat's hair. It was probably kind of coarse, so when you wore it, it was a little bit like sandpaper in a way. But you would, you would put it on as a public way of showing your grief, your mourning, that you were going through an intense time of that. And so the entire city does that in verse 5. And not just the city, but the king in verse 6, word reaches him somehow, and he does the same thing. And he even sits in dust, which is another way of showing your public mourning. And then in verse 10 again, it said, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, you have to remember for a second what kind of people the Ninevites are. I mentioned this in chapter 1, but we often give Jonah a bad rap for running from God. But what would you have done if God would have called you to Nineveh? Because these people are known not just for conquering people, but for torturing them. They are known for taking their captives and cutting off fingers and limbs to torture them. They are known for impaling people on stakes. That's what you did back then. That's what they did. They are known for taking the skins of human corpses and displaying them on their city walls. So as Jonah is going into Nineveh, he's probably like, what am I doing? What am I doing? I mean, he's probably terrified. What would you have done if God had called you to a people like that? Yet God, he has mercy and he has grace on this violent, wicked, torturing people. Isn't that incredible? So the kind of people that God saves are people like the Ninevites. And I have a question for you this morning, a theological question. Why would he do that? 
Why not just rain fire and sulfur on them? Why? Well, two reasons why. Number one, he can do what he wants to do. He's God. The second reason is that the people of Nineveh actually repent. And so do you know what repentance means? When you repent, you are turning from your sin. You're going one direction in your sin, and you turn 180 degrees, and you go the other way towards God. So let me give you a brief mini-sermon within a sermon. You're going to get two sermons today. You're welcome for that. You get two sermons. We're going to look at a quick theology of repentance from the Ninevites of all people. They didn't believe in God at the time, but they're starting to. So here's the first thing when it comes to understanding repentance. True repentance recognizes and confesses your sin before God. So if you're going to truly repent, truly turn from your sin, then you have to come clean before God, which is what they are starting to do. Even the king is urging them to call on God. So that's the first sign of true repentance. Another sign of true repentance is that true repentance expresses sincere and deep sorrow over sin, and I would add, from the heart. So even though we see them doing all these things like putting on sackcloth and fasting and sitting in the dust, even getting their animals involved, which it would have probably been pretty loud in that city. If these animals are hungry and fasting as well, you're going to hear the sheep and the goats and the cattle. All of these things are external things of something going on that God's doing on the inside. And we know that it's sincere because in verse 10, God actually relents and he forgives them. You know, I was thinking about this. When it comes to sincere repentance, have you ever, have you ever confessed your sin or repented or came clean, not just to the Lord, but someone else, not because you really meant it, but because, oh, I better do this just to save face or avoid punishment? Or, Well, Paul will talk about that in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to what? Repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So there's a difference. When God is calling you to repent and confess, there's a difference between being having worldly sorrow versus having godly sorrow. If you have worldly sorrow, which isn't true, genuine sorrow before the Lord, you're more concerned about yourself and about getting caught and about the punishment and the consequences you're facing. But if you have godly sorrow, you are truly and genuinely before the Lord. You are sorry that you've offended a holy God who is without sin. You're sorry that you've offended him, the king of the universe and the king of kings. And it truly leads to repentance, Paul says. So that's the second sign. The third sign to keep trucking along is true repentance pursues God. And I think this is really important. It may be like, well, duh, Rick. But it is important because when we confess our sin, we're not to stay in our sin. We leave our sin for sure, but then we pursue the Lord. We pursue God and who he is. And in fact, the king will say in verse 8 in his declaration, let everyone call urgently on God. Who knows? In verse 9, God may relent. And so even the king, this pagan king, is very God-centered already in his repentance. And then the last point about repentance is that true repentance produces real change in our lives. If we're going to give lip service and tell God, I'm going to repent, I'm going to change, but we don't actually change, then we haven't had true repentance. But we see these Ninevites changing. In verse 8, 
the king calls them to give up their evil ways and their violence. And then in verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, so they actually did something about it. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So the kind of people that God saves are people like the Ninevites. And the key to this is that they repented. These big, strong, tough, and mighty Ninevites who are known for their conquering, they humbled themselves and they repented. So if you and I are going to experience God's grace, guess what God is calling us to do this morning as well? Repent. And it's not just for the Ninevites who are far from God. All of us are far from God. And even if you've been a Christian for a very long time, you never get over the need at some point in your life to repent. I heard one theologian put it like this, that that if we're going to experience God's grace, it's like repentance unlocks the key, unlocks the, the storehouse of God's grace. Repentance is the key that unlocks it. Or it's like if you have a hose that's kinked, you know, pretty soon we'll be using hoses, hopefully, and not snow, I mean, and out in our yard. If you have a hose that's kinked, repentance is like unkinks the hose so that God's grace can flow to your life. And so this is an incredible reminder for us this morning, or maybe it's new to you, that no matter what you've done, no matter what you failed to do, if God can forgive people like the Ninevites who skinned people alive, then he can forgive you. God can forgive rebellious Wicked people like yourselves and myself. (laughs) All of us need the Lord. But even if you say, well, Pastor Rick, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm addicted to. You don't know how much I relapse. Well, I have good news. If God can save the Ninevites, he can save anyone by his grace if you repent. You know, if you're here this morning and you've never repented, I have good news. This, This is the day you can do this. In fact, if you start to feel uncomfortable and start to feel like, man, I better do this, then that is a sign that God is working in your life, wanting you to do this today. And it's not as if it all depends on you. If you read the Bible carefully, I firmly believe that if we're going to repent, that God, first of all, has to open our hearts to believe and repent. In fact, here's a little homework assignment. So you're getting two sermons and you're getting homework. This is a great day. Here's a little homework for you. Turn to 2 Timothy 2.25 sometime today. Not right now, but 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2.25 talks about God granting them repentance. Read that verse and wrestle with how God has to do that first if we're going to do those four things I talked about. So the kind of people that God saves are people like the Ninevites. Now, if you're here this morning too, and maybe you're already a believer, I would also encourage you and challenge you. I mean, I'm sure that Jonah was shocked that the entire city comes to know the Lord. I'm shocked when everybody is with me and watching me and listening and not following. I'm always shocked by that. He must have been shocked when an entire city turned to the Lord. Five words. That's like the best sermon ever preached. Well, I have a question for you this morning too. Who has God put in your life, maybe a, a non-believer, an unbeliever, that you would be shocked, surprised, like we talked about, if God were to bring them to Christ? Who is that person that first comes to mind? I'm sure you can think of someone. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a family member. And man, family members are so hard to share Christ with. Amen. Maybe it's a friend. But if God can save the Ninevites, the wicked Ninevites who are violent, can he not save them? Can he not show grace on them? Can he not use you? If, if, if God can use Jonah in five words, can he not use you in like six or seven words to share his grace? 
What I want to do right now, I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. We're going to pray after this first point. The sermon's not over yet, just a warning, but we're going to pray after this first point. And I want you to pray in one of two ways. Maybe you're like the Ninevites, and you know that you need God's grace, but you're not sure how to receive it. Just cry out to the Lord during this time, silently, confessing your need for him. Because all you need to be forgiven is to realize your need for God and to confess it. Or maybe you're like Jonah, and there's someone in your life that God has put that you would never expect to become a Christian, if you're honest. Pray for that person right now and pray that God would use you. So let's bow our heads in silence for a moment. Father, I pray that you would show people in this very room who are far from you that their sin may reach far, but your grace reaches even farther. We see that with how you interact with the Ninevites here and bring them to a saving knowledge of you. Remind them of that this morning. And remind us, too, that you can save the hardest of hearts. Lord, I pray for that specific person that's in our mind right now that we would be blown away if you saved, Lord, that you would save them, that you would do a miracle, that you would use our feeble, weak efforts to proclaim the gospel and that you would actually bring them to a saving knowledge and a beautiful relationship with you, Father. And I pray that you would use our people here, just like Jonah, as messengers of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's the first surprising truth. The second surprising truth we're going to look at is that the kind of people that God uses for his purposes and his mission are people like, say it with me, Jonah. So he saves people like the Ninevites, and he uses people like Jonah. Now, I want you to think about Jonah for a second. He just disobeyed the Lord in chapter 1, and he tried to outrun God. I mean, he went the exact opposite direction, as far away from God as possible. If you were a boss, would you hire Jonah for this mission again? How many of you would hire him? How many would not, or think twice about it at least? I know I would think twice. I'd have a hard time because past performance is often the best indicator of future performance when you hire someone. But that's not what God does. God says, I want you so much, Jonah, I'm going to pursue you in the storm in chapter one. I'm going to pursue you with a fish. And then I'm going to puke and vomit you out so that you can go. And I'm going to recommission you to go and share the gospel, share God with these Ninevites. One scholar says it like this, if you're a football coach and your team is facing the biggest play of their biggest game, do you give the ball to the guy who just fumbled it and killed your last scoring drive? Or if you own a business and you're trying to win over your biggest account ever, do you give responsibility for it to the guy on the sales staff whose incompetence just drove away another customer? But that's what God does. He says, Jonah, I want you for my team. I want to send you back in. I'm going to put you back in the game. You're going to Nineveh. That's how God works. And it's surprising because, I mean, usually God gives people second and third and fourth chances, but sometimes he doesn't. If you read in scripture, if you 
read like Acts 5 and Ananias and Sapphira, he didn't give him a second chance as far as we can tell. Or King Saul, he didn't always give, he didn't give him a second chance when he did something he wasn't supposed to do. But here with Jonah, God gives him a second chance. Which is so encouraging to us too because the kind of people God uses are people just like Jonah. You know, we often think that if God's going to use us, we have to have a certain theological degree or knowledge, and that can help, but that's not the key. Or, or maybe we need a certain experience, you know, have to have a lot of missions experience and ministry experience. Then God can use me, but that's not the key. Or maybe we need to be able to talk in front of people and, and be well-polished and charismatic, but that's not the key. The key is that God can use whomever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, for whatever he wants. And he does that here with Jonah. And I think another key with Jonah, too, from a human perspective, is that he is finally starting to be humble. I mean, wouldn't you be humbled if a fish swallowed you and you spent three days in there thinking about the Lord? He's finally starting to realize that God is God and he is not. And so really the key, if you're going to be used by God, if you're going to be used by God to do anything, you have to realize you're nothing. In fact, the people that God uses to do everything or anything have to realize they're nothing. And those who, and those who think they're everything or anything, God's going to use you to do nothing. <laughs> the people that God uses are those who have humbled themselves before the Lord, and he, is, he will lift them up in due time. And that's what he's starting to do here with Jonah. So the kind of people that God uses are people like Jonah, washed up, rebellious, puked out rebels. <laughs> And I have a question for you this morning as well. Have you ever sensed God calling you to do something? If you're a believer, then the answer is yes at some point. But he regularly calls you to do something from his word, through other people, through the preaching of his word. What is God calling you to do right now that maybe you've been putting off or neglecting? What is that? Is there something that comes to mind? It could be very simple, but really there's nothing simple before the Lord. It's all important. Maybe you're like Jonah and that you've run away. You've turned your back on God. Well, I have great news. The kind of people God uses are people who will be humbled like Jonah. Just like the Ninevites have been humbled, Jonah's being humbled here as this prophet of the Lord. The kind of people that God uses are people like Jonah. So I want us to close our eyes and bow our heads again and give us some time to think. What is God calling you to do that you've been putting off or neglecting? This is a chance for you to confess that You've neglected it too long. And this is a chance for you to receive God's grace afresh and anew, just like Jonah, and to be used for his purposes. So let's pray right now silently.
God, I imagine many of us can resonate with Jonah. You've called us to do something. Maybe it's as simple as showing an act of kindness or sharing your message with someone. And yet we've resisted. We've been afraid. We've turned our back. But thank you for your mercy. Just like you had mercy on Jonah, you can have mercy on us. So we confess that to you and we receive your mercy anew. And may your mercy and grace empower us to go forth and to share your grace, we pray. Just like Jonah. Father, I thank you that you are in the business of giving second and third and a thousand chances. We see that with Moses. We see that with Jacob in the Bible. We see that with Peter who denied Christ. You re-enlisted him, Lord. Re-enlist us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last part of my sermon, we looked at two surprising truths so far. I was wrestling with all week, why does God act this way? Why does God do these sort of surprising things where he saves people like the Ninevites who don't deserve it, And he uses people like Jonah who didn't deserve to be used. And I thought of two reasons. As you think about the big picture of Scripture, here's my two reasons from Scripture. See if you agree or not. Maybe you can think of more. The first reason why God acts this way is that he does so for his glory. He acts in such a surprising way so that he gets the glory. So he gets the praise and attention and fame. He wants it all to be reflected back to him. I mean, if you look at this story, just remember how phenomenal this is. An entire pagan city comes to the Lord. It's only five words in the original language. And if you look at his sermon in verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's all judgment. Does Jonah have any grace in there, really? I mean, I guess you could say it's assumed that. But really, I mean, we still get the sense that Jonah is kind of reluctant to preach this. He's hoping in chapter 4 that God will rain his justice on him. In fact, that language of 40 more days, do you know where else that's used in the Old Testament? What else happened for 40 days and 40 nights? God sent the flood and brought his judgment on the world. For 40 days, as you think about Scripture, God, Jesus was in the desert fighting Satan, you know, fasting with the Lord For 40 years, Israel experienced God's judgment. So this this is a term of judgment that Jonah is hoping will come. Yet despite that, God still works through it. And he converts an entire city, all so that he will get the glory. I mean, it just goes to show that when God's spirit gets behind God's word at God's time, for God's purposes, there's no stopping God, is there? When God has his mind set to do something, he will do it. I mean, I cannot imagine at the time that many people are praying for Nineveh because this was the enemy of Israel. If anything, the Israelites hoped that God would wipe them out for his glory, not save them for his glory. And yet God saves them and relents for his glory. So as you think about this in your life, if if you resonate with the Ninevites this morning, if you say, well, Pastor Rick, there's no way that God would ever, ever forgive me. I am such a needy, desperate, addicted, desperate person. Well, I have good news for you. That's exactly where God wants you to be so that he gets the glory. Because when you cry out to him, it's not you earning your salvation. It's not you earning your relationship. It's him granting it to you through Christ. But then if you're like Jonah here this morning, where you've run away from the Lord and you realize you don't deserve to be used, or maybe you say, you know what, I I am not talented. I'm not smart enough. I don't have a certain last name. I don't live in burn. Whatever you think your excuse is, God can use you. That's exactly where he wants you to be so that he gets the glory. So that's the first reason I thought of why does God act this way is because he wants to get the glory. All through scripture, that is what he's most concerned about. And then the second reason I thought of as well, 
The reason that God acts this way in chapter 3 is because it shows how God works in the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember, the gospel is the good news of what God has done through Christ on the cross and his resurrection to save us, and we're getting ready to celebrate that around Easter time. But even here in chapter 3, we see so many hints of the gospel. So, for instance, think of the kind of people that God saves, the Ninevites. When Jesus came, you know, hundreds of years later, what city did he die in? Does anyone remember? Jerusalem. Do you remember what the people of Jerusalem did to him? They spit on him. They beat him. They whipped him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And yet when Jesus is on the cross, what did Jesus say? Did he say, Father God, smite them? No, he didn't say that. He said, Father God, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Jesus Christ came preaching an even better sermon than Jonah, yet the city rejected him and the city accepted God's message through Jonah, all for God's purposes and God's reasons. But we are reminded that the kind of people God saves are people like the Ninevites, people like the Jerusalemites that Jesus was dying for, people like Burnites and Adams Countyites and Wells, wherever you're from. God has come to save you. And then you think of the kind of people that God uses. We talked about Jonah. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there's a lot of parallels between Jonah and Jesus, even though they're very different. But if you think of the similarities and differences, Jonah was called by God and disobeyed the first time. Jesus was called by his father, and he obeyed the first time. Jonah was unwilling to go. Jesus came willingly, perfectly to the end. Jonah was cast into the sea in chapter 1 and saved the sailors' lives. Jesus was cast into, into the sea and storm of God's wrath and saved our lives if we repent. But in this chapter especially, we see that the way that God works through Jonah parallels how God works through Jesus. God worked through Jonah in weakness, probably in fear, in a very simple sermon on God's wrath. Well, in Jesus, God works through him giving up his life, dying in weakness on the cross. His defeat was our victory. He's our living hope like we sang about. In his weakness, he brought victory and triumph. In a very unexpected, weak moment, just like through Jonah, he saved a city. God, through Jesus Christ, is willing to save us because of what he did on the cross. You see, the amazing thing, the surprising thing about God's grace here is that it doesn't just happen in Jonah but it happens all through scripture, especially in the cross. So as we close today, I encourage you again to close your eyes, bow your head. We've been praying all through this sermon. We're gonna pray again. We're getting ready to enter Easter. We are in Easter season, technically. I would encourage you right now just to pray, how can God's grace sink a little bit deeper into your life? Maybe it needs to get in for the first time like the Ninevites. Or maybe you're like Jonah where you're kind of stubborn, you're kind of rebellious, you're kind of a runaway, washed up prophet as well. You can relate to that. And God's grace needs to sink even deeper into your life. How can you appreciate and enjoy God's grace this Easter season? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads in silence. And then I'll close in prayer.
Father, we praise you for your multifaceted grace again in this chapter, just like we've seen in all of Jonah. Lord, you have grace on the Ninevites who humble themselves before you and you save them. Lord, you have grace on Jonah. You give him another chance. You, you call him a second time where many of us would have given up on Jonah. And Lord, you have grace on us, just like the Ninevites, just like Jonah. Lord, I pray that during this Easter season, we would be blown away again by your grace. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name, by your spirit, that we would not take for granted your grace. I pray that it would sink a little bit deeper this Easter season. And I pray that it would also propel us outward to share your grace with someone that needs it. Lord, we talked about inviting someone on Easter, Pastor Mike did. I pray that you would even propel us out to even do a simple act like that and show your grace. Father, use us just like you used Jonah so that you get the glory and so that it showcases your gospel and what you did through Jesus Christ. Father, we are desperate for your grace. We pray that you would move in a mighty way through your grace in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, my prayer for you is that you would go in his grace. I pray that just as we had time to spend time praying and reflecting in silence on God's grace, that you would have many moments of silence to think about God's grace this week. Thanks so much for coming. Have a wonderful week.